This morning we continue our study from the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 7, where Paul is writing to the church uh, in chapter 7 about issues of marriage and singleness and sexual intimacy. And it's important as we get started, just, uh, and I'll remind you of this again, that um, in this section of 1 Corinthians, Paul is responding to questions or are are issues that the church at Corinth had raised in a letter that they had written to him. 1 Corinthians, the letter we call 1 Corinthians, is the Apostle Paul's response to this letter he received. And so in, in, in chapter 7 is really where he turns the corner and begins to, to deal specifically with issues that they raised and, and is seeking to uh, help them understand um, biblically how they are to live as followers of Christ in a fallen world. Today we're going to focus on 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 6 through 16. That's found on page 955 in the Bibles that are provided there for you in the rows if you'd like to follow along as I read. First Corinthians chapter 7 beginning at verse 6. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry for it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? Let us pray. Lord, I pray that as we consider your gifts of, of singleness and marriage this day, Lord, that our eyes and our hearts, Lord, would be open to the truth. Lord, that we would value marriage as you value it, and Lord, that we would value singleness as you value it. Lord, you have created both things for our good, and I pray, Lord, that you would use uh, this passage to, to grow us and strengthen us, Lord, that, um, that, that the very members of this congregation would be uh, a voice of truth and encouragement even to their unbelieving friends and relatives about these two important issues uh, and your design for them. 
Lord, I pray uh, for any here, uh, any marriages here that are struggling, Lord, I pray that the, the words that are said and the truth that is proclaimed from your word, Lord, that your spirit would use that to bring uh, reconciliation and growth and, and hope into that marriage, Lord, for, for, for those here that, that are single and, and perhaps are, are dissatisfied in their station in life, Lord, I, I pray that their eyes would be open, Lord, to the, to the great opportunities that you provide, uh, Lord, in that season of life as well. Lord, I pray that as you open eyes and hearts to the truth, Lord, that you would also uh, guide and convict us in the ways of righteousness, Lord, that we would find our joy in following you faithfully. Lord, I pray for help and for strength, uh, Lord, both for the speaker and also, Lord, for those who will hear the truth. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. If you were here last week, you know that I began by pointing out the fact that the church's silence regarding God's design for sexual intimacy within marriage has led to missed opportunities in our efforts to reach the lost, as well as leading confusion within the church as we seek to live faithfully in a world that, that promotes values which are contrary to God's ways and God's word. Brothers and sisters, what, what we believe matters, and, and also what matters is, is how what we believe shapes our lives. If in the course of our time together this morning, the, the church sanctuary caught fire... What you believe about fire would affect how quickly you wanted to, to get out of here and, and, and get your loved ones out of here, would it not? Your, your, your understanding of the dangers of fire and, and what it can do would have a direct impact on your response. I remember a few months ago I was up preaching and, and I smelled something burning. I don't know if you were here, if you remember that, but what had happened was that the, the, the bass guitar had a leather strap that had been set too close to the uh, spotlight, and over the course of the service, that leather started to heat and smoke and stink, and, and of course, being closest to it, I was the first person to smell it, and so my response to that odor, even though I tried to remain outwardly calm, inwardly, I was having a response because I knew something was burning. What I knew about heat and fire had me reacting on the inside. Should, should we evacuate? Should we run away? Thankfully, the, the issue was a small one. But, but the person who says that they believe that fire is dangerous, yet sits calmly and quietly in their seat as, as the building burns down around them is either crazy or they're deluded concerning what they really believe about fire, right? That makes sense. Now, that's an extreme illustration, but, but I think the point is true. What, what we believe should directly influence how we live. If we believe what the Bible teaches concerning sexuality, concerning marriage, concerning worship, concerning heaven and hell, concerning redemption, faithfulness, concerning everything else, 
then those beliefs must shape our lives. Now, let's be honest, sometimes we, we, we struggle to believe what we know in our minds to be true, and, and other times we struggle because we don't know what to believe. It's, there, there's ignorance. We, we lack faith or we lack understanding. But the good news is, brothers and sisters, that the Bible speaks to both conditions. They, they, they speak to, the Bible speaks to those who are struggling in their faith, And the Bible speaks to those who don't know enough. And Paul actually does this in the letter that we call 1 Corinthians. He he addresses problems that essentially reveal a lack of faith on behalf of the Corinthians in what they had already been taught. The divisions that existed as a result of their idolizing their leaders, that, that, that was not an ignorance issue. That was a, a matter of unbelief. They, they had already been taught that Christ is Lord over the church. The, the Corinthians had chosen to, to lean on their former way of doing things rather than embracing the truths that they had learned. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul begins to address issues of ignorance in the church, as well as issues of unbelief. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 deals with, with the question of, number one, whether or not marriage or, or, or singleness was the best way to do the Christian life. We learned last week that the, the, the culture was marked by sexual immorality and also a very loose view of marriage, which led some in the church to believe that sexual intimacy and even marriage itself was bad. Such a view is, is rooted in ignorance, and, and Paul writes to set the record straight. Now, last week, Paul's exhortation was simple. Single people need to stay celibate until they're married, and and married people need to be engaged in sexual intimacy for their protection, for their unity, and for the health of the marriage. In today's passage, Paul reveals that both singleness and marriage are gifts gifts from God for the good of his people and the glory of his name. As we examine 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 6 through 16, we're going to do so by, by under, looking at it under three headings. First of all, we're going to consider God's gift of singleness. Secondly, God's gift of marriage. And then finally, we're going to consider exhortations from Paul to believing Christians who had unbelieving spouses. So, so Paul kind of hits everyone in the church in this section of 1 Corinthians. And it's my prayer that that God would grow and expand our love for him and our appreciation for the many good gifts he has given to his people. Let's first consider God's gift of singleness, verses 6 through 9. Paul writes, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. 
But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, verses 6 and 7 really are Paul expressing his wish for the church. This is Paul giving an opinion. I, I think it would be better for you to be like I am, single. To be unmarried as he was unmarried. Now, in our day, when, when, when marriage and family are, are treated almost idolatrously in some circles, Paul's words seem almost blasphemous. How, how can you say that, that it's good to remain single? We're, we're all about family. <laughs> Unfortunately, single people in many churches are, are, are at times treated like second-class citizens. A common conversation might go like this. Oh, John, you're, you're such a nice young man. How is it that you aren't married yet? Laced in the compliment is this underlying assumption that something's not right. Because you're not married. Now, this is tragic. Because we will see as we continue in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that Paul makes it clear that there are advantages to being single when it comes to our service of the Lord. Paul's point here is, is clear. Whether married or single... What we must be centered on is being content and glorifying God in our circumstances. Later, in in verses 32 through 35, Paul points out that that the advantage of singleness is that the single person is free of the responsibilities that husbands and wives have toward one another and, and actually can focus more fully on the things which bring honor to God. Now, Paul could travel the known world preaching the gospel and, ha- and do so without having to worry about leaving a family behind in the process. A-, a single person is not burdened with the same financial burdens, which can also often allow him or her to be more generous in supporting ministries and, and-, and supporting those in need. A single person can can better use his or her time in serving others because they can prioritize others without neglecting responsibilities at home. A single person is free from the various conflicts that arise within a marriage. And all the married people said amen. And And a single person is also often free from the difficulties that arise from parenting as well. If you're single, (laughs) these benefits must be seen as that. They are benefits from God. You, You have opportunities that others do not have. And your response should be to make it your goal to make the most of those opportunities and serve him wholeheartedly during this season of life. Even if one day you will be married, 
Don't waste your singleness now. Understand the opportunities that God has given. One of Angela's close friends from college illustrated this point well. Uh, Following graduation, she she was very adventurous. She went to Afghanistan as a single woman to live and do relational evangelism with, with the women there, with the Afghani women. Now, after serving there for a season, she was burdened by the oppression that she saw that the women there faced. Many of the, of the single ones could not provide for themselves and, and, and were often taken advantage of. And so she, she, she decided she would come back to the United States and, and go to school and, and earn a business degree and also a degree in cosmetology. And what she found when she went back as she taught these ladies how to to, to learn and and do a business and do these things, that she actually got a wider door for the gospel because more people would, would, would come to learn these skills and thus be exposed to the truth of the gospel. During this season in her life, she had a, a freedom to invest in the kingdom of God, even risk her life for the kingdom of God because she recognized the benefits that she had as a single young woman. Don't waste this season in your life. And and I say that even to the obvious singles among us this morning, the younger singles, the school-age singles, (laughs) Last week, I encouraged you, I I even challenged you as a young person to make your purity a priority in your life. And that was in reference to to, to avoiding sexual immorality. Let me also encourage you, young person, that, that, that this is a season of your life, too, that you should be devoting to serving and following God. You're never too young to start. Paul's wish that the single in the church would remain single was was rooted fully in his single-minded focus on serving God alone. We see this in his life. A couple of summers ago, we did a, a, a brief overview over the life of Paul uh, while the children were up with us during our summer services. And we saw that in all that Paul did, he was willing to, he was willing to risk it all and, and suffer it all for the sake of the gospel. And, and so in his wish that they would remain single, what we see is, is his heart, his fire, his passion to, to give his life in service of the Lord. Now, can married people serve God? Absolutely. But they do so facing limitations. So in verses 8 and 9, Paul continues. He says, To the unmarried and, and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, singleness, like marriage, is a gift from God. We saw that in verse 7. And, and like marriage, singleness is not for everyone. In verse 9, Paul warns the unmarried and widows that they should get married 
if they cannot exercise self-control. Verse 9 really piggybacks the, the warning that we saw last week of, uh, of the seriousness of the power of sexual desire in our lives. Paul doesn't say that if they cannot exercise self-control, they may marry. He says they should marry. They should. Why? Because the danger of unchecked sexual desire leads to sin and trouble for the single person. Within marriage, we we learned last week that there is a God-ordained outlet for our passions to be satisfied in a framework that God has given for our good and for his glory. If you're single and and you are aware of these desires within you, that that may be a good case for you realizing that, you know what, this gift of singleness is only for a season of my life. There are some who in the process of pursuing a pure lifestyle before God, they realize that they're not overly concerned with or are preoccupied with this idea of intimacy within marriage. Others, even as they pursue purity before the Lord, long for the connection and the bond that exists within marriage. Those are often good signs, really, of of where our hearts may lie. If you are single and and in pursuing your pure lifestyle, you're not really concerned about marriage or being focused on it, there's nothing wrong with you. That is evidence of God's grace and God's gift to you. Live for his glory. He might change that someday. There might be someone that he brings into your life, that, that special godly man or, or woman that he brings into your life, and, and, and you find your mind and your heart changes in that. But for now, live for his glory. If you are aware of that drive and desire within you, pursue purity for the glory of God, understanding that it would be best for you when you find a, a godly man or wife to pursue marriage for the glory of God. This is not something that we should follow the lead of the culture on. A long engagement is not a good idea if it is leading you into sexual temptation and sin. You need wise counsel. You need to guard yourself. But you also need to recognize that it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Because that is a fire that will burn you up. To burn with passion comes from one Greek word, pyrouthsei. And in this case, it means to be ignited by one's passion. We use the word pyro in in the English word pyromaniac. And and we know that a pyromaniac is someone who has an uncontrollable urge to start fires. They want to see everything burn to the ground. And honestly, unchecked, unguarded sexual desire can have that same effect on our lives. And we must be on guard to to, to avoid exposing ourselves to the things that feed those desires as this world is filled with them. 
I need to, to keep moving because of time here, but I do want to say one other thing to, to, to singles and to married. If, if, if you are doing illicit things or immoral things to feed that desire within you, single person, if you're in the habit of, of, of viewing things, or married person for that matter as well, viewing images or, or reading books that, 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 that feed your sexual desire, you need to understand that, that you are adding to the problem. If you are addicted to pornography and all of a sudden you're thinking, you know what, I can't stop thinking about sex. Well, there's a reason that those things are connected you're not in a place to, to be able to say, okay, well, I don't know that I have the gift of singleness or not, or, or whether I should get married or not. You've got a bigger problem than that. You need to forget about marriage and, and, and take steps to, to live righteously before the Lord. Because that stuff will kill you. A few weeks ago, as West was preaching on, on the sexual immorality of the culture in Corinth and, and how that was affecting the church, he made this simple but profound statement. It's a good idea to run away from things that can kill you. Those things can kill you spiritually. Let's keep moving. God's gift of marriage, verses 10 and 11. Paul writes, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, in my introduction, I mentioned that the church, or the, that the culture in Corinth had a pretty loose view of marriage. And, and really, in order to appreciate Paul's teaching in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I think it's helpful that we know a little more about the culture's view of marriage in ancient times. Now, under Roman law, and remember, Corinth was under Roman rule, there were actually four different types of marriage. So you can kind of see why the Corinthians might be writing in, to Paul in having questions about marriage and divorce. Now, the first type was if, if you were a slave and, and your master had another slave that, that you wanted to, to marry, if, if your master would permit it, then you entered into what was called a contabernarium or a tent companionship. And this marriage only lasted as long as the master said so. So you were married under the authority of the master. If he decided to, to sell one of the slaves in, in this tent companionship, then the marriage was over. So that's the first type. The, the second type of marriage was one that was similar to what we call a common law marriage today. Once a couple had lived together for a year, they were in what was known as usus, which meant that they were married in the eyes of the state. And so there's this cohabitation that led to the view of marriage in the eyes of the state. The, ter the third type of marriage involved the, the father selling his daughter to a prospective husband. The, the husband would pay what was called a bride price to the father. And this was called a coemptio in mangum marriage. 
Okay, it's kind of like a reverse dowry system where the husband actually paid. And then the fourth type of marriage was more with what we are familiar with today. In fact, it's the basis for the way we do marriage ceremonies today. It's called a, a confaretio marriage. And this was usually reserved as the wedding between nobles in society. But the ceremony involved rings and vows, a best man, a, a maid of honor, a bouquet, and even a wedding cake. Sounds familiar, right? But these were the, the four types of marriage that existed then. And, 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 and add to that the fact that divorce was, was common for all four types. It was not uncommon for, 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 for men and women to, to marry and divorce as many as 20 times over the course of their adult lives. C- couple all this with, with, with the Corinthians' view that, that all sexual intimacy was bad and, and that people within the church were divorcing for spiritual reasons, and we see why Paul had so much to say in response to the Corinthians, right? This was a mess. These were confused Christians, they, they saw the wickedness of the culture and in a desire to, to swing to another extreme, they went too far, decided, you know what, God's gift of, of marriage isn't so good, so, so, so let's start divorcing for spiritual reasons so we can be more spiritual before God. Can you see where that could go? Well, what's a spiritual reason? Do spiritual reasons only come up when I'm aggravated with my wife? So Paul's got a lot to untangle here for the Corinthians. In verses 10 and 11, Paul shifts gears to focus on really what we could call his second statement in chapter 7 on marriage. The the first was found in verses 1 through 5. Sexual intimacy should be a regular aspect of a Christian marriage. And the second statement is equally clear. God's expectation and aim in a Christian marriage is that it be permanent. Paul begins with the statement, To the married I give this charge... Not I, but the Lord. Now, I want to unpack those parentheses briefly because a lot of violence has been done to this passage by by misinterpreting the beginning of verses 10 and 12. In verse 10, Paul gives a charge that he says is from the Lord. In verse 12, that's different. He says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. So is Paul saying that verse 10 is inspired and, and verse 12 is simply his opinion, like the statement on... Singleness earlier? I'll give you a hint. No. No. The answer to this is actually very easy. In verse 10, Paul is actually quoting directly from Jesus' teaching in his earthly ministry concerning marriage and divorce. I'll, I'll, I'll quote from two sections of the Gospel of Matthew, which relate to this. The first is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. Now keep in mind that as Jesus is giving this sermon, not only were common folks present, but Pharisees were present as well. And we learned in our study of the Gospel of Luke that Pharisees, much like the the culture in Corinth, were serial divorcers. They would find reasons to, to divorce their wives for any reason at all. And then they would remarry. 
And so this section of, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, you listening, religious leaders? Matthew 5, verse 31. Jesus says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And so, right there, Jesus is already setting up a stumbling block before the Pharisees. In Matthew 9, verses 3 through 9, He addresses the issue of divorce again, again to the Pharisees. He says, And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said that therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So as Paul says to the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord, he's quoting something that was already in evidence, something that had already been said, taught on by the Lord himself. Jesus has already weighed in on the matter and the expectation was simple. For the people of God, Christian marriages are permanent with the exception that Jesus gives that when one when one partner is sexually immoral adulterous in the relationship and even then the implication is that they are unrepentant in that again this this was an issue for the church in Corinth because of their ignorance There were some who saw divorce as a viable option because they thought it would be more spiritual of them to divorce their spouses and live a single life in devotion to God. But Paul says, not so fast. The Lord has already spoken on the matter. If you're married, don't seek to be divorced. This was true for husbands and wives. For those who had divorced in the church in Corinth, their options were simple, either to stay single or seek to be reconciled to their spouse. Now keep in mind that that Paul at this section of 1 Corinthians is writing to believing couples, both the husband and the wife, believe. And his words are clear. He, He calls the church in Corinth to do something that the contemporary church needs to do as well. We need to value marriage for the institution that God has created it to be. One of the great failures of pastors and leaders over the past 50 years has been a failure to teach and counsel clearly on the significance and the importance of marriage as God has set it forth, rather than to be co-opted by a worldly view, which I believe is why the, the divorce rate is so high in the context of the church. If we had done a a better job, not just before the wedding service, but but in the overall teaching of the church, 
Perhaps the church itself would have a higher view of the gift of marriage. As I've met with and, and, and counseled brothers and sisters who have been through the trauma of divorce, that is one of the things that has come most clearly. Is that, that leading up, there has been a failure to set marriage aside in the context of the Christian community and with, with the weight and, and, the, and the authority that it deserves. As Christians, we, we, well, well, first of all, we need to remember that the, the marriage covenant is, is to be a visible representation of Christ's covenant with his church. Jesus, praise the Lord, does not divorce us, nor does he break his covenant with us in any way. And as Christians, it falls on us to, to, to seek to be accurate in our reflection of, of Christ's faithfulness to his church in our faithfulness with one another in the covenant of marriage. Now, I mean this in a temporary sense because we know that when we get to heaven, when, when the coming kingdom is instituted, there will be no marriage but our marriage to the Lord. In every marriage in this room that consists of a believing husband and a believing wife, our aim must be to live together in such a way that, that, that the only answer that the world could give is that we love each other the way we do because Jesus first loved us and gave his life for us. So Christian brothers and sisters, stay married for the glory of God. But what happens when there are Christians and non-Christians who are married to one another? This does happen. Sometimes it happens in direct disobedience to, to the command to not be unequally yoked or tied to unbelievers. A, a Christian woman or man might decide that they love this person and want to be with them even though that he or she doesn't believe. That's bad. That, that's actually rebelling against what God calls us to. It's sin. But sometimes Christians find themselves unequally tied to unbelievers because when they got married, they weren't Christians either. Now they've responded in faith to the gospel, but their spouse has not. This is what we're going to find the case to be with many in Corinth. Uh, a final way that Christians find themselves unequally tied to unbelievers is that when they got married, they thought they were marrying a Christian. He or she did or said the right things, but over time, the course of their life revealed that their faith was actually insincere. And in verses 12 through 16, Paul addresses how Christians should respond in, in, in all of these situations. A, a word to, spou to spouses of unbelievers, verses 12 through 16. In verse 12, we, we find Paul's second set of parentheses where he indicates that these are his words, not a quotation of something that Jesus said. And, and again, the mistake that is made is, is that people think that Paul's just giving an opinion here. But Paul is, is, is writing authoritatively. In, in verses 12 through, 13, 12 through 16 are just as authoritative as verses 10 and 11. In these verses, Paul addresses two scenarios for Christian spouses married to unbeliever. In the first scenario, we see those spouses who are married to unbelievers that actually want to stay in the relationship. Verses 12 through 14, Paul writes, To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife 
who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Now, I think the principle here is clear. The, if the unbelieving spouse, whether male or female, wants to stay, let them stay because in staying they experience to a degree the benefits of a home that is blessed by God's hand upon the believing spouse. That, that, that's what Paul means by being made holy. Not that the unbelieving spouse is saved because of the believing spouse's faith, but, but there are ways that the home experiences God's grace for the sake of the believing spouse. The, the hope is that in being exposed to God's gracious hand at work in the life of the believing spouse, the unbelieving spouse will recognize the work of God and repent, believe, and, and give glory to God. And the same is, in, is true for the effects on the children as well. A home where one spouse is a Christian and one house or one spouse is not, one parent is not, is, is, is infinitely better than a home where neither spouse, neither parent is a believer. The, the presence of a believing parent exposes children to the blessings of God and the truth of the gospel. Paul's command is simple. If the unbelieving spouse wants to stay, let him stay. If, if the believing spouse's faithfulness to the marriage covenant communicates the importance of Jesus' covenant with the church and, and exposes the entire family to God's grace in ways that they would not otherwise experience it if the unbelieving spouse left. Now again, this is not the case where you have someone who was guilty of adultery and they want to stay just because life is better in the home, and, but they are unrepentant. This is a situation where you have a believing and an unbelieving spouse, and overall the relationship is somewhat healthy, and, and there's not a, a betrayal or a breaking of the covenant that, that God has instituted in marriage. And, and the believe, unbelieving spouse simply wants to stay married to the believing spouse. Paul says to the believer, don't try to divorce your spouse for spiritual reasons. He's answering the question that's been raised. Let them stay if they want to stay. Let them experience God's grace that they too may repent and believe. The next section, verses 15 and 16, are, are directed to unbelieving are those whose unbelieving spouses choose to leave. Paul writes, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Again, Paul's words are simple and straightforward. If the unbeliever leaves, let him go. In leaving, the unbeliever abandons the believing spouse and also the marriage covenant. Now, in the case of the marriages in Corinth, in the majority of these cases, both spouses were unsaved at the time they were married. Simple math. The gospel had not been in the community that long. And so most of those marriages existed between non-believing spouses where one came to faith in Christ. 
And when they came to faith in Christ, uh, uh, they were changed. That's what happens. And, and the unbelieving spouses may not have liked the changes or approved of the Christian faith. In those cases, if the unbelievers wanted out, Paul says, let them go. Christian, you're not, you're not guilty because of the abandonment that's taken place in the marriage. It's better to be at peace in allowing the unbelieving partner to leave than trying to fight them and, and force them to stay in the marriage. Now, verse 16 is one that we often read in an optimistic tone. But, but it's actually the reasoning that Paul gives for allowing the unbelieving spouse to leave. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul's stating the obvious. They don't know. If they want to go, don't badger them to stay thinking that you can somehow save them. That is not the work of man. God is the one who soften, softens hearts and open, opens eyes. These are, are, are challenging words. These are very real and personal situations that Paul addresses here. And, and he does so not heartlessly, but trying to do so, giving us an eye to, to, to the good gifts that God has given. The sin of divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Uh, allowing a, a, a spouse who does not believe to go is not a sin for, for the believing partner who allows them to go. Holding a, an unrepentant spouse accountable for immorality and adultery is not unloving, but it's being faithful to the marriage covenant. Brothers and sisters, God has called us to recognize both singleness and marriage for the good gifts that they are from God. Whether we are single or married, our focus must be on, on how we honor God in whatever situation we find ourselves in. For the singles among us, you need not be envious of your married brothers and sisters because God has you in a situation where you can serve Him in ways that you will not be able to if you get married someday. If you are married, you should not be envious of those who are single because you've entered into a human covenant before God that, that, that is a visible representation of the gospel. Your relationship with your spouse is one of your witnessing tools. Let that sink in. And just as you should be on guard against having lust, a lustful, wandering eye in maintaining your sexual purity, you should also be on guard against becoming lukewarm in your commitment to your spouse before God. No, no matter what our situation, God is calling us to delight ourselves in Him and invest ourselves fully in His calling on our lives. For married couples, you are called to, to, to seek with God's help to be the godliest spouse and parent you can be in your family. For the single, you are called to, to seek to be with God's help the, the godliest and, 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 and sincerest single person that you can be for the glory of God and for your good and for your joy. No matter 
what the situation, God has called us to learn to delight ourselves in Him and to invest ourselves fully in His calling on our lives. Brothers and sisters, the grass may look greener in someone else's pasture, but the good shepherd wants you to eat in the field that he has led you to. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you uh, for this word, for this encouraging reminder from the Apostle Paul of, uh, of your good gifts to your people. Lord, I thank you that your grace covers all of our sins, your, 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 your mercy.